Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities in connection with the administration's initiative to reform the U.S. financial regulatory system. This update covers the period from April 2nd to May 5th. On April 8th, 22 Senate Democrats sent a letter to the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget requesting that he instruct all federal agencies to indefinitely extend all open or announced upcoming public comment periods for rulemakings and administrative actions not related to COVID-19 pandemic response and to pause any new administrative rulemaking actions unless those actions are explicitly required for the COVID-19 response and recovery. On April 9th, three Senate Banking Committee Democrats sent a letter to Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell urging the Fed to immediately prohibit banks with more than $50 billion in assets from making any further capital distributions like stock buybacks and dividends although they acknowledge that some of the largest banks have volunteered not to engage in further buybacks, the senators note that they are still paying dividends and assert that ending capital distributions now at banks with more than $50 billion in assets will refocus these banks on their core mission, lending to their communities a critical goal during these difficult economic times. On April 16th, Senators Jerry Moran of Kansas and Tom Tillis of North Carolina sent a letter to Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Jay Clayton expressing concern that the Commission's existing interpretation of the current expected credit loss or so-called CECL accounting standard relief provided in the CARES Act, coupled with other actions by its fellow federal financial regulators, had resulted in an environment ripe for investor confusion. The Senators noted that Section 4014 of the CARES Act provides for a temporary optional deferral from implementation of the CECL accounting standard for depository institutions, and they urge the SEC to, at a minimum, extend this relief to all financial institutions, both depository and non-depository, in order to ensure a level playing field. On April 27th, the Council of Institutional Investors and the Consumer Federation of America sent a letter to the leaders of the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, urging them to reject efforts to politicize or compromise the integrity of generally accepted accounting principles by impairing the independence of the private sector financial accounting standards board that establishes GAAP. The joint letter expresses concern about a proposal by lawmakers to apply the Administrative Procedure Act, which governs the process by which federal agencies develop and issue regulations, to the FASB's private sector accounting standard setting process. The APA proposal becomes more likely because of the aforementioned Section 4014 of the CARES Act that overrode a decision of the Financial Accounting Standards Board regarding the effective date of the CECL accounting standard. The joint letter concludes that to impose the APA on the FASB's private sector accounting standard setting process undermines 
the FASB's ability to develop accounting standards that foster confidence in our capital markets and give investors and others the ability to make informed decisions. Let's move now to recent activities of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. On April 2nd, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton issued a statement addressing in part the Commission's approach to allocating resources and conducting oversight and rulemaking activities, noting that the Commission's general approach in these unprecedented circumstances is premised on putting health and safety first, as well as a firm message that the law continues to apply. Chairman Clayton reports that it is his intent to continue to apply this pragmatic, flexible, facts and circumstances approach to the Commission's allocation of resources and actions during this uncertain period, accounting for the advice and expertise of his fellow commissioners and staff and the views of market participants. With respect to the views of his fellow commissioners, in a statement issued the very next day, SEC Commissioner Allison Heron Lee said that the Commission should proceed with great caution in considering whether to take regulatory action outside of that called for by the current dire and pressing public health crisis and its ramifications for the public, investors, markets, and the economy. She added that regulatory action in the near term, not related to the exigencies created by COVID-19, would rarely be warranted. Before issuing any rules, Commissioner Lee suggested the SEC consider the following four factors. First, whether an action represents an appropriate use of the Commission's resources at a time when the SEC is routinely called upon to take emergency actions. Second, whether an action will unduly tax the already strained resources of investors, market participants, or the public. Third, whether the SEC can adequately assess the economic effect of an action in light of rapidly evolving economic conditions. And finally, whether the action is otherwise critical to advancing the Commission's mission. On April 2nd, a U.S.-listed Beijing-based company named Luckin Coffee announced it informed a special committee to investigate whether its chief operating officer and board member and subordinates had orchestrated a more than $300 million fraud in sales beginning in the second quarter of 2019. A China-based member firm of EY Global that had served as independent auditors of Luckin Coffee told the Wall Street Journal that while auditing Luckin's 2019 financial statements, it identified management's fabricated transactions, which it passed on to the audit committee. On April 9th, the Council of Institutional Investors wrote to William D. Dunkey III, the chairman of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, requesting that the PCAOB investigate the audit of Luck and Coffee, given that the auditor was a PCAOB-registered audit firm and had never been inspected by the PCAOB. Our letter stated, quote, it's not clear to us that the PCAOB can have confidence in processes of firms that it has not been permitted to inspect for more than a decade. On April 21st, PCOB Chairman Dunkey, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton, and other SEC officials issued a public statement discussing a variety of concerns on investments in emerging market companies, particularly including 
the PCAOB's inability to inspect audit work papers in China. The statement indicates that in many emerging markets, including China, there's substantially greater risk that disclosures will be incomplete or misleading, and in the event of investor harm, substantially less access to recourse in comparison to U.S. domestic companies. This significant asymmetry holds true even though disclosures, price quotes, and other investor-oriented information often are presented in substantially the same form as for U.S. domestic companies. It's unclear to CII what prompted the SEC statement, but it's interesting to note that a footnote in the statement references a recent change to Chinese securities law that could be interpreted as codifying a stance of non-cooperation with investigations of the SEC, the PCAOB, and other overseas regulators, including for Chinese-based companies listed on U.S. exchanges, as well as Chinese operations of U.S.-based companies. As characterized by the SEC and the PCOB statement, Article 177 of the 2020 Revised Chinese Securities Law provides, among other things, that without the approval of a securities regulator and various components of the Chinese government, no entity or individual in China may provide documents and information related to securities business activities to oversee regulators. Two days after the SEC PCOB statement was issued, PCOB Chairman Dunkey responded to CII's April 9th letter asking the PCOB to investigate the audit of Luck and Coffee. In his April 23rd response to our letter, Chairman Dunkey emphasized that Chinese authorities impede the board's ability to oversee PCOB-registered audit firms in mainland China and Hong Kong. Chairman Dunkey's letter noted that the PCOB has long sought the cooperation of Chinese authorities and will continue to do so. Then on May 4th, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton announced that the SEC staff would host a roundtable this summer to hear the views of investors, other market participants, regulators, and industry experts on how the SEC can continue to raise investor awareness of risks related to emerging markets, including Chinese companies, and explore potential additional steps that can be taken to mitigate those risks. Among the topics that Chairman Clayton indicates may be further explored at the roundtable are the following. One, the limited ability to inspect for compliance and to enforce U.S. laws. Two, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's inability to inspect audit work papers in China. Three, the role of index providers in other passive investment strategies. And four, potential future additional remedial actions and the potential collateral consequences of those actions. In other SEC news on April 8th, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton and the Division of Corporation Finance Director Bill Hinman issued a statement providing observations and requests regarding public company disclosure in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and urging public companies when issuing earnings releases and conducting analyst investor calls to provide as much information as is practicable regarding their current financial and operating status, as well as their future operational and financial planning. In particular, the statement stresses that public company disclosures should reflect the current state of affairs related to the COVID-19 outbreak 
and respond to investor interest in one, the company's standing operationally and financially, two, how the company's COVID-19 response, including its efforts to protect the health and well-being of its workforce and its customers is progressing, and three, how its operations and financial condition may change as all efforts to fight COVID-19 progress. The statement also notes that due to COVID-19, in many cases, historical information may be substantially less relevant. The statement acknowledges that providing forward-looking information is challenging and that it may be tempting to resort to generic or boilerplate disclosures. The statement encourages companies and their advisors to make all reasonable efforts to convey meaningful information, information that provides investors a level of insight that allows them to see key operational and financial considerations and challenges the company faces through the eyes of management. In addition, the statement encourages companies to avail themselves of the safe harbors for forward-looking statements and notes that they would not expect good faith attempts to provide appropriately framed forward-looking information to be second-guessed by the SEC. On April 16th, the Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the SEC urging the commission not to approve a proposal by the New York Stock Exchange to expand the use of direct listings by permitting companies that sell shares themselves in the opening auction on the first day of trading on the exchange in addition to or instead of facilitating sales by selling shareholders. As CII indicated in its January letter to the SEC in response to an initial request for comment on the New York Stock Exchange proposal, CII continues to believe the proposal may provide investors with fewer legal protections than would exist with a traditional IPO. CII is also concerned that the New York Stock Exchange proposal could subject investors to greater risk as a result of the smaller number of required shareholders and the potentially low aggregate market value of publicly held shares required by the proposal at the time of listing. On April 23rd, Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the SEC commenting on the Investor Exchange's LLC's proposal to create a new discretionary order type called a D-limit. As we indicated in a February letter to the SEC in response to an initial request for comment on the IEX proposal, CII supports the D-limit order type because we believe it provides a useful tool to better ensure that investors are transacting at fair prices, it helps to level the playing field between long-term investors and low-latency traders. On April 28th, the Council of Institutional Investors and the CFA Institute sent a joint letter to the SEC offering our perspectives on several proposed changes to Regulation SK. Issues that are raised by the SEC SK proposal and addressed in our joint letter include four topics. First, the contractual obligations table. The joint letter opposes the proposed removal of the required contractual obligations table. We believe the information currently contained in the table is not duplicative and is critical to assessing the cadence or funding of liabilities. We believe the information in the contractual obligations table is particularly important in light of the economic and liquidity events stemming from COVID-19. Second, selected financial data. The joint letter opposes the proposed removal of the required selected financial data table. 
We believe the information currently contained in the table for the back years, years four and five, is not readily accessible by investors in all cases, such as when there are classifications due to accounting changes. Third, the comparison of interim periods. Uh, the joint letter opposes the proposed modification to permit registrants the choice of comparing their most recently completed quarter to either the corresponding quarter of the prior year or to the immediately preceding quarter. We believe the current more restrictive requirement for interim period comparisons is important to providing greater uniformity of information essential to making assessments. And finally, our letter to the SEC on their proposed regulation to amend SK discusses data tagging. The joint letter supports greater electronic data tagging to allow easier consumption of the required SK disclosures. On April 29th, SEC Associate General Counsel Richard Humes notified CII in a letter that our appeal that had been submitted in January to the SEC's Office of the Freedom of Information Act Services had been remanded after concluding that the FOIA office did not perform an adequate research in response to CII's request. As background, allegations of systemically high errors by proxy advisors were a critical reason for the SEC to propose sweeping regulation of proxy advisors back in November 2019. A key table in the SEC's November proposal depicts companies' concerns with proxy advisors' report analysis as expressed in supplemental proxy statement filings over a three-year period. The table categorizes those concerns in one of five buckets, factual errors, analytical errors, general and policy dispute, amended or modified proposal, or other. To gain assurance that the table accurately depicts errors in, in a way that's not misleading, CII filed an initial Freedom of Information Act request seeking the research that the SEC to gain assurance that the table accurately depicts errors in a way that is not misleading. CII filed an initial Freedom of Information Act request seeking the research that the SEC staff had relied on in preparing the table. In mid-January, two weeks after CII sought dispute resolution services, to expedite our FOIA request, and two weeks before the proposed rules comment deadline, the SEC's Division of Economic Research and Analysis published a memorandum and data file intended to put CII's FOIA request to rest. The DERA report included a description of the methodology and uh, the, the uh, report included a description of DERA's methodology and identified the filings DERA staff had reviewed in preparing the table. But critically missing from the information provided by DERA, but critically missing from the disclosure provided by DERA in response to our FOIA request was the analysis, but critically missing from the disclosure provided from DERA in response to our FOIA request. And as explained in CII's subsequent appeal of our FOIA request, but critically missing from the disclosure, as explained in CII's subsequent appeal of the FOIA request, was the analysis of how each allegation was ultimately categorized by DERA for purposes of the table included in the SEC's proposal. CII's own research concluded that the rate of factual errors and proxy advice is extremely low and most of the concerns 
raised in the SEC's table were policy disputes, amendments to the proposal, or improved disclosure, and that the analytical errors that the SEC listed in the table were actually disagreements on methodology. On April 30th, CI released a report that studies shareholder proposal data from 2011 to 2019 and considers the impact of the SEC's November 2019 proposed rule that changes the Rule 14A resubmission thresholds for shareholder proposals. The CII report concludes that the SEC's November proposal would have a significant impact on several areas of concern for a wide range of CII members. The report describes how the proposed new higher thresholds would have more than doubled the number of excluded proposals in 2011 to 2019, in particular, reducing the number of shareholder proposals for independent chairs and to improve disclosure on political contributions and lobbying. Our report notes that the pending SEC amendments to Rule 14A8 would also make resubmission of shareholder proposals difficult at dual-class stock companies. On May 4th, the SEC held a meeting of its Investor Advisory Committee to discuss public company disclosure considerations and public company shareholder virtual engagement meetings in a COVID-19 pandemic context. In preparation of that meeting, the Council of Institutional Investors was asked to provide their views on several of the issues to be discussed. The CII letter dated May 3rd focuses on two topics, uh, public company disclosure and shareholder engagement and virtual shareholder meetings. With respect to public company disclosure, our letter shared the view that timely corporate reporting is, if anything, even more critical for investors during a time of crisis and market volatility. Our letter notes that narrative guidance on specific questions related to operations appears to be particularly important now, and we think as a general matter, more important than specific earnings guidance. More specifically, for many businesses that have continued to operate without pause, in some cases actually stepping up operations due to demand, a critical set of issues for successful operation now includes safety of employees and customers. CI believes the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance should consider sharpening its March 25th disclosure guidance to consider whether it can prod useful COVID-19 related disclosure on matters of human capital management and customer safety as it has in other areas. We also believe it would be useful to consider whether it may make sense for the, the Division of Corporation Finance to provide additional guidance for company disclosures on business continuity planning more generally and going forward. This could include, for example, proxy statement disclosure about the board's role in approving business continuity plans a narrative discussion on whether or not business continuity plans are stress tests, and if so, a general description of the approach used. The second topic addressed in CI's letter to the IEC was shareholder engagement and virtual shareholder meetings. With respect to this topic, you're noted that CI has been skeptical about the replacement of in-person shareholder meetings with purely virtual meetings. But CII realized that virtual shareholder meetings have become imperative this spring in light of the communicability of COVID-19 and the various governmental orders limiting meetings and travel. However, CI believes the necessity of virtual shareholder meetings has made it even more important that virtual meeting technology should facilitate the opportunity for remote attendees to participate in the meeting to the same degree as in-person attendees. Based on anecdotes about 
some annual meetings early in the 2020 proxy season, CI is concerned that too often virtual practice may be falling short. Some of the problems that we identified in our letter to the IAC include shareholders' inability to log in for meetings, unable to ask questions during the meeting, the lack of transparency on questions asked by shareholders, making it possible that company officials may be cherry-picking questions to which to respond, and conflicting channels for shareholder participation, with shareholder resolution proponents required to be in a line that's different than the line that's used for general shareholder Q&A. Our letter to the IEC also stated that we believe it would be helpful for the SEC to require proxy statement disclosure for companies holding virtual shareholder meetings on how companies are complying with state law rules about shareholder ability to participate in meetings. And also, uh, we believe it would be useful for the SEC to require that proxy statements include an electronic address for contacting a board representative and for communications on shareholder proposals or other shareholder concerns. Finally, our letter to the IAC noted that the potential board disruption of contested meetings due to COVID-19 is yet another reason to assure that shareholders can vote by proxy in the same way they can at the annual meeting through the use of universal proxies. And we urged the SEC to complete its 2016 rulemaking for universal proxies. In other governance news, on April 13th, the Council of Institutional Investors unveiled the COVID-19 Resource Center on our website at www.cii.org. The Resource Center includes a variety of materials related to the impact that the pandemic is having on capital markets, investors, and companies. On April 14th, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, or IOSCO, published a report on substance. On April 14th, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, or IOSCO, published a report on sustainable finance, summarizing current sustainability initiatives undertaken by both regulators and industry actors and providing a detailed analysis of the most relevant ESG-related international initiatives and third-party frameworks and standards. Specifically, the report highlights three reoccurring themes in sustainable finance. First, the multiple and diverse sustainability frameworks and standards across jurisdictions, and in particular, sustainability-related disclosure. Second, the lack of common definitions of sustainable activities. And third, challenges to investor protection, including greenwashing or practices aimed to mislead investors or to give them a false impression about how well an investment is aligned with its sustainability goals. Observing that issuers and asset managers operating cross-border may be subject to a wide variety of regulatory regimes and initiatives, often with inconsistent objectives and requirements, IOSCO cautions that this may prevent stakeholders from fully understanding the risk and opportunities that sustainable business activities entail. Accordingly, the report reflects the expectations from regulators and market participants that IOSCO should take an active role in facilitating global coordination and addressing transparency. On April 17th, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's Office of Economic Risk and Analysis announced that they would be soliciting comments from audit firms, preparers, audit committees, investors, and other financial statement users on the PCAOB's interim analysis of critical audit matter requirements. All comments should be submitted no later than June 15, 2020. CII 
currently plans to issue a comment letter in response to the request. On April 21st, the Council of Institutional Investors, the AFL-CIO, the Democratic Treasurers Association, and the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, all comments should be submitted no later than June 15, 2020. The Council of Institutional Investors currently plans to issue a comment letter in response to the PCOB's request. On April 21st, the Council of Institutional Investors, the AFL-CIO, the Democratic Treasurers Association, the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, the Shareholder Rights Group, and USCIF sent a letter to AT&T's chair and CEO and leading independent director expressing disappointment that AT&T decided to bar its shareholders from personally presenting their proposals at the company's April 24th virtual annual meeting. A week earlier, AT&T, in correspondence to shareholder John Chabedden, indicated that in lieu of presenting his proposal during the meeting by phone, he had to provide a pre-written statement not to exceed 100 words. The company said it would read that statement aloud if it passed A&T's test for appropriateness. We understand the AT&T sent the same correspondence to two other shareholder proponents. Our joint letter states, quote, AT&T's virtual shareholder meeting is the first one that we are aware of that will not provide shareholders with the option to present their proposals in their own voice by telephone or other electronic means, unquote. Joint letter also questions whether AT&T's action violates federal proxy rules and the provisions of Delaware General Corporation law that require shareholders to authorize the company to present their proposals on their behalf. Joint letter concludes, quote, in our view, reasonable means of remote communication includes at a minimum the ability for shareholders to present a properly submitted Rule 14A8 proposal by telephone or other electronic means. On April 23rd, the Council of Institutional Investors submitted a letter in response to a consultation by the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited on extending dual-class shares with super voting rights to corporate shareholders. CI's comment letter opposes the proposal, citing long-standing principal agent risks and concerns that corporate holders have the potential under the proposal to maintain dual-class shares indefinitely. Our letter states that should the exchange proceed with the rulemaking, despite CII's opposition, we recommend that the exchange adopt a number of safeguards to protect outside shareholders. That completes my corporate governance and financial regulation update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed or CII's related views, please feel free to email me at jeff at cii.org. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.